It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? And the problem is there is no field like that for long-run forecasts about AI. There's AI researchers who come into work and try to make today's AI systems do something better. And I think their views are very important, but it's a little bit like if you became concerned about climate change, would you go and ask people working on solar panel design how bad climate change is going to be? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. What if I told you that this century, the moment in which we are currently living, is the most important, most consequential in the history of humanity? And that we were on the cusp of changes so dramatic and profound that once it begins to take hold, what it means to be human will be utterly and irreversibly changed. Maybe that means we'll be controlled by AI overlords. Maybe it means we'll all move out into the galaxy and live in space forever after, perhaps hitting a population of one trillion, as Jeff Bezos has predicted. Anyhow, it all sounds a little far out, I know, but this week's guest uh, thinks not so much. Holden Karnofsky is the founder of GiveWell. Uh, a company that helps assess and guide charitable giving globally. He's no longer there because these days he runs Open Philanthropy, which is an organization he started with Carrie and Dustin Moskovitz, which helps manage the multi-billion dollar fortune of Moskovitz, who of course is the other Facebook founder. Anyhow, I wanted to have him on because this summer I came across a series of long, detailed blog posts he had written all under this one kind of umbrella idea that this indeed may be the most important century ever for humans. Now, much of this argument, as you'll soon hear, revolves around the evolution of AI and what that might mean if we can really create these programs that simulate human ingenuity and are easily replicable. So if you can imagine a truly limitless imagination, times infinity working on the world's biggest problems, something like that. What does that look like? What does that mean for all of us? Anyhow, he ended up turning all of these ideas into a Kindle book. It's the most important century. You can find it on Amazon. And there's just some really interesting ideas here, not least because of the circles in which he moves are interesting. You know, these aren't the idle thoughts of some loon. It's somebody who has a well-funded organization 
in Silicon Valley exploring really how to do the most good in the world most efficiently and following a very quantitative, research-heavy approach. Um, and he comes to this hypothesis that, yeah, we're living in a pretty crazy time and that things could change pretty dramatically, pretty quickly, perhaps a lot more quickly than we that we realize and that we should probably start talking about this and thinking about what this all means. Uh, so anyhow, that is the idea. So I will now hand you over to my conversation with Holden Karnofsky, the CEO of Open Philanthropy. Enjoy. So I got in touch, gosh, I think the first post you did was about two months ago-ish. Sounds about right. Yeah. And I, someone posted something about it on Twitter and I was reading it and I was like, and the kind of the headline is, you know, paraphrasing, this could be the most important century ever that we're living in right now. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> and then you went on to post a number of the, of kind of subsequent posts that kind of flesh all of that out. Yep. So high level, if we could talk about what the big idea is, why you think that, and then we can kind of get into a little bit of the history of what got you here, what you do in your day job and kind of what you're seeing and then kind of talk about the, the idea itself. Yeah, I think that's a sensible place to start because I'm coming from somewhere where I, I really didn't expect to land here mm. at all. So, um, you know, my sort of story is I've spent the first half of my career co-founding this organization called GiveWell. And GiveWell is about helping donors decide what charities to give to to help as many people as possible. Right. And it generally focuses on very evidence-backed, rigorous, cost-effective charities, uh, usually doing things like treating children for intestinal parasites and giving out bed nets in the developing world, Africa, India, right. et cetera. And, you know, really the first half of my career, I was really focused on evidence for things like that, bed nets, deworming for intestinal parasites, and just trying to find the way to help the most people possible with donations. And and is there a universe, a specific universe? I, I mean, you're out here. We're talking in downtown San Francisco. Yeah. Is it mostly techies or people in this universe that you're advising or that are kind of involved? For GiveWell, I would not say so. So GiveWell is a yeah. public website, and it's got all of its the full details of the analysis are right out there on the web. And people from all over the place are using it to donate. You know, sometimes someone will give... $10 on GiveWell, and sometimes someone will give a heck of a lot more. But it's it's a very general thing. It's not, you know, it's not for one kind of person. It's for anyone who wants to do the most good with their donations. And what problem is that solving? What problem is that solving? I mean, the, you know, the, the reason that I co-founded it is that my coworker and I were in finance. We were in our early 20s, and we just wanted to give to charity and said, you know, how can I do this in a way that helps the most people possible? Sort sort of one a metaphor for it would be like, how do I get a good deal in my donation? Yeah, yeah, right? So yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. we almost wanted a wire cutter. I mean, the wire cutter didn't exist yet, but we wanted yeah. a wire cutter for charities or something. Right. And so that that's the problem in solving. And so at the time, I would look at all the options and I would say, I don't know where to donate. Yeah. I want my money to help the most people. And now that GiveWell exists, I mean, I still personally donate to GiveWell's recommended. I'm not there anymore, but I still mm. personally donate to GiveWell's recommended charities because I feel that if I'm giving some money, I want I want to do the most good that I can. You started that when you were, I believe I did some prep. We talked okay. about how we don't like doing prep, but uh, you were Bridgewater yeah. Associates, which is a very famous hedge fund. That's right. Yeah. Right. So you left there. You started that. And then what? 
Yeah, and then, so was at GiveWell for a long time, and then at some point we met Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskovitz, and Dustin is the co-founder of Facebook and Asana. He's the other guy, yeah. The other guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so they were looking to give away a lot of money, and we kind of met with them because they were interested in GiveWell, but over time we formed this partnership with them that is now called Open Philanthropy that started as part of GiveWell and has spun out into another organization. Mm. And open philanthropy, it's it's just the same basic mission as GiveWell. It's you're giving away money. How do you help people the most possible? But instead of a website that's giving recommendations to anyone who comes in, it's a tighter partnership with mostly one family, sometimes other families giving away very large amounts. And so it right. sometimes has a different style. And so open philanthropy, I mean, actually, a lot of what Carrie and Dustin still do is just give to GiveWell's recommended charities. They're proven. Mm. They help a lot of people. They work. But- Also through open philanthropy, they do what we call hits-based giving. So the idea there is you're you're still trying to help the most people with every dollar, but instead of looking for something like bed nets where every $5 is a bed net, you might take some risks and you might try some unproven things. Mm. You might do some experiments because one of the things I learned when we started this and I read up in the history of philanthropy is that there have been these enormous successes from philanthropy where just have helped incredible numbers of people, like the the Green Revolution, which is often credited with lifting a billion people out of poverty, yeah. was originally a philanthropic operation. Oh, it was. Yeah. And, um, the Green Revolution is the kind of the breeding of these new types of yeah, grains and exactly. rices, et cetera, yeah. that helped a lot of people not die from starvation. Exactly. It was, it was a huge deal. And at the time, it was this weird improved crop breeding in Mexico. It was, it was a philanthropic thing where someone was willing to take a risk on it and try something a little weird, and it turned into this huge success. One of my other favorite philanthropy success stories, and actually we're sitting in a conference room. Each conference room in our, at our organization is named for one of these successes. Um, I saw but, one is named Sesame yeah. Street. Yeah, Sesame Street was originally philanthropically funded. I did so, not know that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there have been there have been some cool things. And what are we now? We're in. What this is, is Nun Luger. So this is um, a philanthropic effort to raise awareness among policymakers of the threat of nuclear war. And oh. so there was a cooperative threat reduction paradigm, and the Nun Luger Act, we believe, kind of reduced the risk of nuclear war and was somewhat attributable right. to right, philanthropy. Right, right. And, and another another conference room, which is one of my favorites, is The Pill. The Pill. Yeah, so it was a feminist philanthropist, Catherine McCormick. Ah, uh, I see, yes. Funding yes, yes. the work that went behind uh, this oral contraceptive that completely you know, revolutionized a lot of things and yeah. was a huge step forward for feminism. And that's another thing where it's like, at that time, it was very controversial. And they couldn't, yeah. they couldn't even advertise it as birth control. They had to, the warning label was the advertisement. And so it wasn't the kind of thing the government would fund. It was, again, someone taking a risk. Right. And so it was like, you know, sort of looking at that history, I sort of got into this idea that this hits-based giving idea that as a philanthropist, if you can get really, really big wins, you can have sort of nine out of 10 grants not work out if one out of 10 is a huge So hit. it's almost like a venture capital approach to Yeah, you to could think of it that way. Right. Yeah, that's right. Right. And so that's some of what open, a lot of what Carrie and Dustin fund is give all top charities. But a lot of open philanthropy is also this hits-based approach where we'll we'll do something that's a little ahead of the curve. Yeah. That's not, you know, total. I mean, we we always look a ton at evidence, but the evidence might not say exactly what's going to happen. And we'll take a chance. We'll try to be ahead of something. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. When it does work out, it's really big. And I think already, you know, open philanthropy is a few years old. And already we've been, I think, very early to some 
causes that I think it was really good to be early to. Uh, and, and like what? So an obvious example is that since 2015, we've had a big biosecurity and pandemic preparedness program. So we've been, oh. yeah, we've been the main supporter of a lot of the U.S. organizations that lead the way on trying to think about the next pandemic. And so a lot of those organizations are in better position because of the financial support they've had over the years right. since 2015, not since yeah, you yeah. know t- January 2020, yeah. when all of a sudden pandemics became very interesting to everyone. Yeah. So that's an example. We also are the largest funder right now of farm animal welfare. Uh, so we've funded a number of corporate campaigns that have led to pledges of cage-free only eggs from basically every U.S. fast food company and grocer by now, and a lot of mm. international too. So you fund the kind of public awareness campaigns or public pressure campaigns? Yeah, the pressure campaigns. We fund those. We fund alternative meats as well. We're an investor in Impossible Foods. And we also, we were one of the first funders of the Yimby movement. I don't know if that's familiar. Yes, yes, in my backyard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Some of the first like institutional funding, which has now become this, this idea going across the country that we should be trying harder to build more housing. Um, And just, you know, I, I think there's a lot of reasons that that's a good thing and it's becoming a more popular idea. So we've been, you know, a number of times we've been kind of the first funder in an area. And, you know, another area for us is is macroeconomic policies. So this idea of prioritizing full employment in America mm. when the Federal Reserve is making decisions that we think it's really this is one of the top issues actually for uh the prospects of working class Americans and for their bargaining power. Yeah. And it's again an area that had almost no philanthropy when we came into it. So how does that even work? I mean, that's obviously a big thing to get your arms around. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we funded a number of groups that just do analysis on kind of the pros and cons and the trade-offs of prioritizing avoiding inflation versus prioritizing aiming for full employment. And that's right. this kind of trade-off that is often made. And you know, we believe that making that trade-off better could lead to just a better life for a lot of people in the working class. Right. So you've set up open philanthropy and it's taking this kind of moonshot approach to to philanthropy and it's funded by dustin and carrie primarily yep and so you're doing all this really interesting good work and so how do you get to this point where you're like i think we are on the cusp of kind of everything changing about what it means to be human and that it's happening now potentially in this century and that not only that i'm gonna write effectively a book about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good question. So it, again, I mean, a lot of people come across the ideas in the, you know, the blog post series I'm doing on, on my blog called Cold Takes. And they're kind of like, where is this coming from, Holden? You're, mm. you know, you've always, you've spent most of your life kind of just working on global health and yeah. global poverty. And how'd you get into this? But it is, it's all one story. It's all one continuous idea. So started with GiveWell trying to help people as much as possible later got into this hits-based idea, trying to still help people as much as possible by trying to be ahead of things, take risks. And just over time, as co-CEO of Open Philanthropy, I've just continually pushed myself to say, what else could we be missing? What are what are big, important things that affect a lot of people? One of the frameworks we use, we look for things that are important, neglected, and tractable. So things that are a big deal, but that aren't getting enough attention. And so it's this active search for what's What's something really huge that's not getting enough attention that if we were early to it, we could help people a lot more than just doing, you know, the standard most proven stuff. And so that's how I've come across this idea is I just I just go through whatever networks might be able Mm. to introduce me. A lot of times that's people in the effective altruism community 
to sort of the next big thing or the biggest issue for humanity that people aren't paying attention to. And that's, I did encounter a lot of people who would say things like, if we develop the right kind of AI, that could really change everything. It could really lead to the world changing a lot faster and more dramatically than anyone expects. And that could kind of set the tone for a very long, very weird future. So the basic idea is that, you know, a lot of people imagine we could eventually have a very strange future, that we could eventually have kind of a spacefaring civilization. But a lot of people assume it's very far in our future. And this idea that, that I was introduced to is that the right kind of AI could speed up that transition so much that things sort of spin out of control. And depending on how things play out, you could get a really great technologically advanced world uh, with sort of, you know, very little scarcity and things like that. Or you could get a horrible dystopia or you could even get a world that's just run by AI systems we developed without being very careful that just have their own objectives that are not human compatible. So when I first ran into all this stuff, yeah. I want to be clear, I was I was pretty skeptical. And I said, yeah. this is this is too much. This is too wild for me. And it's been a journey to get there. But I do consider it part of my job. And I still wouldn't say this is a definite. This is still not something I'm confident about. But I consider it part of my job to look for things that that could happen that are possible that are not getting enough attention. So we just take a step back because AI is obviously a very, very big theme of this kind of future that you're yeah. saying might be kind of around the corner in evolutionary terms. When you talk about this being this kind of potentially moment in history, can you sketch out what that might look like in terms of, you know, here we are today. Yep. We're still in the throes of a pandemic. I parked right out across the street from your building. There's like nobody in downtown San Francisco still, yeah. which is just weird. Yeah, it's, it's a ghost town. Uh, and, you know, there's all of these issues, et cetera. But like what got you to this point where you, as you say, it was a journey for you to be like, you know what, actually, hmm, there could be some serious things happening here that will, as you say, will change everything. So the, you know, the basic idea of why we might be in the most important century is one way of putting it is that the world economy kind of grows at a few percent a year right yep. now. And so we're all kind of used to that. And that's how it's been for a couple hundred years. Yep. So as far back as any of us can remember, the world changes a certain amount every year. It's kind of a moderate amount is what it feels like to us. But actually growing at a few percent a year is incredibly high by historical standards. It's mm -hmm. much faster than most historical growth. And so if you look at the last couple hundred years of human history, you see what looks like kind of a constant straight line. It's just the world changes. The world economy grows a few percent a year. There's a few percent more yeah. stuff So if you year. zoom out from yeah. all the craziness and wars yeah. and everything happening, it's yeah. like this a steady, steady line. line. Uh, yeah. Over the last couple hundred years. Yeah. But if you zoom out further than that, it looks very different. Mm. If you zoom out further than that, you see that things used to be a lot slower. And what that means is that they've gotten faster. There's yeah. been acceleration. And so the question is, what causes acceleration in the rate of economic growth? And why has that acceleration kind of flattened out recently? And there's this idea that there's um, standard growth economics models will tell you that there's this feedback loop you can have that goes... You start by making more resources, and then when you have more resources, that results in having more people. Mm. When you have more people, that causes more ideas. And then you get more ideas, means more resources, means more people, means more ideas, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. When you have that feedback loop, the standard economic growth literature will tell you that growth is going to accelerate. It's going to get faster and faster. And so a lot of people believe that's how things have been for a lot of human history. But today, that's not how things work. We don't have more resources leading to more people. 
the population just grows at a certain rate. So when yeah. there's more resources, people get richer. So, so the way it used to work is the more resources there were, the richer people got, the more children they had, the faster the population grew. But now it's going to do the opposite, right? Yeah, exactly. Today it's the opposite. Yeah. And so what that means is that we have this possibility for accelerating growth, but it's not alive right now. Right now we have constant growth. Hmm. And so the question is, is there something that could bring back accelerating growth? And a possible answer is if you could develop AI systems that do the part of people in the economy. In other words, especially the part about having ideas, the part about innovation, the part about pushing science and technology forward. If you were to automate that, then you could get back to this feedback loop and then you could have a dramatic acceleration in growth again. And so if we were to get back on the historical trend of accelerating growth, you could see things change a lot faster very quickly. You could sort of see science and technological advancement just speed up a very large amount and go to the moon. In the theoretical economic models, you go to infinity and and you go there this century. That's not what's actually going to happen. You hit some sort of other limit, but it could be very disruptive. Things could suddenly start changing extremely fast. Mm. And again, it wouldn't be the first time in history that things were changing at one rate and then they sped up a lot. It would just mean that things are changing even faster now than they had in the past. And so that's why this idea of you know, building a certain kind of AI system would have these tremendous consequences. This sounds like AGI, artificial general intelligence, this idea. And we've had um, Scott Phoenix on this podcast a couple of years ago now. Yeah. And he was talking about like, once you get AGI, that's the last invention. Because then the AI is like, oh, we've got all these climate change issues. Well, this is how you solve that. Oh, we have all these energy issues. Oh, well, let me just figure out nuclear fusion, whatever, whatever it may be. Yeah. Like all the biggest problems, you can throw this sentient, unfathomably powerful AI at and then maybe not snapping your fingers, but then it's, right. it's solved. Is that kind of the core of, of your thesis? And if so, is there something that you saw? Because I'm sure you, you know, you talk to the people out here and I know a lot of people have a lot of really interesting ideas and are working on a lot of really powerful stuff out here. I don't know if you went to like a bunker and was like, oh my <laughs> God, I just saw it. No. I just saw the future <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or something like that or something no. that got you yeah. to that point where you're like, yeah, this is actually not a crazy idea. I should be clear that we really try at Open Philanthropy to ground our views in just very rigorous evidence. Yeah. And so when we talk about whether something's a possibility, a lot of what we try to do is look at very long running trends and look at probabilities And a lot of the data points we're using to believe this is plausible, they have more to do with sort of historical trends in economic growth and surveys of experts in AI and what they're predicting, Mm. and then sort of analysis of how big an AI model would have to be before you could start comparing it to a human brain and when we might expect that and how expensive that would be to train. So we tend to try to be very rigorous and not base our views on hey, did you see this system do this thing? That means that we're going here, you know? I would say if there's one thing that has kind of changed my views here, it's for the last, you know, several years, uh, not quite a decade, deep learning in AI Mm. has become a more successful method of making AI systems that can do certain things. And there's two things that are interesting about deep learning. One is we now have AI systems that are able to do things that are very intuitive for humans. The humans don't know how we do. Mm. And also, we don't know how the deep learning systems are doing them. And so I think one yeah. of the things that has has made me kind of sit up and take notice is just that we have very powerful AI systems 
that we we just don't understand almost anything about how they operate, mm. what they're thinking, what reasoning they're using. We give them a task, they do the task, we don't know how. And that's a pretty scary thought if these things yeah. are going to get to a point of you know, having sort of human level cognitive abilities at some point, but they're completely opaque to us. That's a scary thought. And that's made me take uh, take this whole area pretty seriously. Yeah. And I usually don't like to reference the kind of the circus type displays of AI's abilities, like, you know, the AlphaGo thing, for example. Oh, sure. Yeah. But I do think I was talking to um, Kate Metz from the New York Times, who wrote this piece on the kind of AI taking off and becoming a thing. And he has a great story in there about you know, the alpha, big alpha go kind of showdown in, I think it was Korea. And they're training the AI on like, you know, play many billions of games, et cetera. But like the kind of winning move against the best player in the world was like, was something where it was like, it was so kind of unexpected by this like absolute master. He's just like, it was just like, and it was like almost like a quasi religious experience for this guy (laughs) where just like, oh my God. This was just completely unexpected and genius. And it was like, and it was, again, this idea of like, uh, I didn't know, like, nobody could explain why that happened. Right. But it did. And it was, you know, the AI figuring out how to beat this human. Exactly. Yeah. These systems are very, in many ways, many computer systems are somewhat mysterious, but deep learning systems, it's a special kind of thing. And there's been a, a little bit of work trying to understand them. You could you could almost think of it as like digital neuroscience, where you mm. kind of you probe the artificial neurons in a neural network and you try to figure out what's going on in them. And you know, one of the early findings was they were looking at an image classifier, and they found that when it's thinking about whether something's a barbell, it's always asking whether there's a human hand attached to it. Mm. It just thinks that you know, because all pictures it's seen of barbells have a human hand attached to them, so it thinks a human hand is kind of part of the whole idea of a barbell. Yeah, and it's just like. This thing doesn't have the same concepts we do. It's it's a completely different way of thinking, and we don't know how it's thinking. And then the question is, are we going to get to the point where there's a big profit motive for that kind of system to be doing anything and everything in our economy? And how do we feel about that? Because I feel nervous about it. Yeah. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com another area you you touch on which we've referenced is space exploration yeah what is your view there here we are i think Branson just went into quote unquote, we'll call it quote unquote space. It's kind of, okay, yeah. it's kind of small space, sure. the small s. <laughs> sure. Yeah. As did Bezos. But, you know, uh, just you can see the direction of travel. We're going to be going back to the moon, it sounds like, very soon. And SpaceX is building these giant rockets to get to Mars, et cetera. It does feel like that is a significant moment. But how do you see that playing out? And how does this play into your larger thesis? Sure. So I think you're right that space exploration is is the kind of thing people are making these very small, slow moves yeah. toward. And it's not, I think a lot of people would say, eventually, we probably will have the technology to kind of spread throughout the galaxy. But that's a long way away from now. That mm-hmm. could be 
you know, people will say that's not coming this century. That'll come in the next 500 years, the next thousand, 10,000, 100,000 years. And I completely, I mean, that I think is the right, the right idea by default, because I do think things are moving pretty slowly on that front. Yeah. And so there's a, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't project today's trends and say we're about to be, you know, a galaxy scale civilization in the next century. But then you introduce this idea that you could have a dramatic acceleration in economic growth like past historical accelerations. Mm. And so the next 100,000 years could become the next 100 years. And that's kind of the thing, you know, that's some of what concerns me is because once you do start going out into space, it could matter a lot what kinds of people and what kinds of civilizations and what kinds of values are going out into space. And it could be the kind of thing that's hard to walk back or improve after mm. it starts happening. So that is something that concerns me. You know, another, another thing that I've, that I've written about or tried to point out is that the interesting thing is that even if you think it's going to be 100,000 years, that certainly makes the stakes of this century lower than than I think they might be. Yeah. Um, but actually, with life on Earth being over 3 billion years old, with the universe being over 10 billion years old, with probably tens of billions of years in our future, if you think the next 100,000 years are going to be the years when, for the first time ever, a living species starts spreading throughout the galaxy, you already think something kind of wild. And a lot of what my journey has been here has been you know, I started hearing about these ideas about how AI could affect the world and how it could be an enormously consequential thing. And my initial reaction was always just like, this is too much. This is too weird. You're saying we live in this extremely important time. And what I've kind of learned over time is there's a bunch of reasons that have nothing to do with AI to think that we do live in a really weird time and that we should sort of be ready for anything. So what do you mean by that? Like what kind of things beyond like the kind of science fiction, AI, sure. you know, the, the all-powerful AI that can discover new drugs or whatever, solve big problems. Yeah. What are you referring to? I'm sort of referring to just a zoomed out bird's eye view of what our time looks like set against the full historical backdrop. So, you know, like I said, I mean, it's the, the universe is over 10 billion years old, life on Earth over 3 billion years. And it's just the last, depending how you count, 300,000 years, 3 million years, that hu something human-like has emerged mm -hmm. that's sort of using tools. And so already, already we live in kind of a strange time. It's like it's it's sort of the blink of an eye on a cosmic scale that there's been a species like this. And then in human history, almost any way you slice sort of advances in science and technology or growth in the economy or growth in population or almost any metric you look at, it sort of looks like more has happened in the last few hundred years than in the previous 300,000 or 3 million. And so you have this strange this strange idea that, you know, if you if you make a timeline of interesting events in the universe like the first, you know, the first life, the first tools, the first space travel, everything gets very bunched up together right around the time we're in, right around the last few hundred years. And then if you look to the future, I mentioned before that, you know, we have this sort of global growth each year in the economy of a few percent and as far as I can tell, there's pretty good arguments that that can't last more than another 10,000 years or so. And so what that means is that the level of growth today, things are changing faster than they ever have. More has happened in the last few hundred years than has happened in the previous several hundred thousand and in the previous several billion. But also, this rate of change just can't even go on all that long. And so there's just a lot of reasons to think that we live in a, a very weird time. Just things have been speeding up. There's only so much more they can speed up. And so just by default, the odds that we're in sort of this tiny sliver of time when the galaxy goes from empty to populated 
look pretty good, even if we're just completely ignoring the possibility of AI, just looking at trends, just looking at uh, acceleration in the world economy, how fast major world events have happened, how much room there is to have this rate of change for very much longer, that adds up to us being in sort of a wild time. Things are already wild, and that's made it easier for me to think, gosh, maybe we should really be paying attention to something that could be the headline about this era billions of years from now. So I'm curious, are you kind of a voice in the wilderness? <laughs> or, you know, because in the kind of, let's call them billionaire circles, and, you know, if you see any kind of public interview, it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, wealth inequality, mm-hmm. big problem. It is a big or problem. Or <laughs> climate change. Yeah. Huge problem. Which I also agree with. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, behind closed doors, is there any meat there? Like, when you're talking about, you know, these people with huge resources, and as we say, the funneling of resources up and the winnowing of the middle class and the growing underclass, that is continuing. So I'm just trying to understand if if you have any sense of people at the very top are actually deeply concerned about that because, in a way, it's kind of against their own interests. And if so, like... What does that look like when it comes time to looking at real solutions? Because it feels like that's government level, that's system level, that's taxes, that's it's a lot of big levers to pull. Well, I would certainly not say I'm a voice in the wilderness on this. And none of the ideas in the series I'm writing are original to me. So yeah. I've, I've picked them up from other people. There's certainly a dialogue around these issues. And also, I would say that you know, open philanthropy has for years been putting work into trying to assemble the evidence, assembling the angles on how you would forecast whether something like this might happen. And we've had experts in the relevant field review everything we've done. And so it's not me making stuff up. It's not a voice in the wilderness. It's it's a conversation that's happening that involves, you know, certainly AI experts and neuroscience experts and economists. There's definitely a dialogue there, but something I will Something I will concede, and that bothers me a lot, actually, is that there is no field. There is no, and, yeah. and this is, I think this is a challenge. Field, we field have. of what? A field of expertise in what transformative technologies might be developed in the future. Yeah. And so I think, I think we're kind of, as a society, we're used to this idea that if you want to know if something is real, you should just ask the experts in that thing, and the experts yeah. will tell you if it's real. I don't know that this has been the best habit for the COVID pandemic, but that's a matter for judgment. <laughs> but um, but certainly in, in climatology, for example. So climatology is a field yeah. that puts a huge amount of effort into long-run forecasts of planetary climate and how that might matter. And this very strong consensus is developed. It's almost unanimous. I think it might be unanimous at this point. And a lot of people still don't take it seriously, but it makes it easy for me to take climate change seriously that there's such a consensus. Yeah among people who spent their whole lives making long-run forecasts. And the problem is there is no field like that for long-run forecasts about AI. There's AI researchers who come into work and try to make today's AI systems do something better. And I think their views are very important, but it's a little bit like if you became concerned about climate change, would you go and ask people working on solar panel design how bad climate change is going to be? And it's like, they would have insights. They are relevant. They do know things. They're an important part of that conversation. But if there wasn't a field that was specifically about making long-run forecasts, you could have a lot of trouble getting this issue taken seriously and figuring out what to do. And I do think we've got a problem because I think that's where we are on this. It's I think there's just no field one way or the other 
that is dedicated to long run forecasts about what AI might be able to do, how that might affect our economy, how that might affect our society. And that does make this a very challenging, disorienting space. And a lot of what I've been trying to do is just get my head around it all and create more dialogue and more opportunities for there to be critical examination of these ideas and increase the odds that if they're wrong, that I find out that they're wrong and why they're wrong. Right. So the idea of like basically looking at AI as like a, almost like a system level thing that we need to really understand because it could like climate change in a very different way, change everything. Yeah, exactly. And, And I do wish there was a field like climatology of just people who spend their lives saying, what do AI capabilities possibly look like 50 years from now? And what would that mean? And I think there may be that field tens of years from now, because people are starting to be concerned and see it as an important issue now. And so that field could come into being. The question is whether we should wait before sort of looking for ways we can cause this to go better instead of worse. And so what in this kind of, I mean, nobody knows what, how the future is going to go, but what are you most focused on? Because is it wealth inequality? Is it climate change? What do you see that it gets, that could go very bad or get really exacerbated by this new age of super powerful AIs that can really change kind of everything? So it's very hard to make precise predictions about the future. So all I can say is when I look at the sort of dim outlines of what seems worth worrying about, you know, one of the things that does pop to me and a lot of the people concerned about this issue is the idea of misaligned AI. So we have AI systems that we don't really understand how they're thinking. We train them by trial and error. And if these systems become very powerful, if they come to fill the economy, are they going to have their own objectives? And I think that sounds like a wild idea, but I think when you look at how deep learning systems are trained, a lot of times it's just trial and error getting a system to be good at a task. And we don't know if it's good at that task because it's learning to do things just like we would, or it's learning to fulfill some other goal that we don't understand that is causing it to do well at the task. And so, you know, I think it's, it does seem like a bit of a worst case that the whatever big future we get or whatever radical sci-fi future we get, it's not a human future at all. It's a future that's just run by whatever strange objectives developed through whatever strange training processes that none of us were thinking about very hard. So that possibility scares me. And then I think the other possibility that scares me, I mentioned before, is just people rushing, racing, fighting to build the most powerful AI systems. And then you get this world where it's the fastest, most powerful, maybe richest people who end up sort of writing the future or, you know, being there as the advanced technology is developed to create a much bigger and more advanced civilization. And that's a future that worries me too. And so I think there's a, like so many things that can go wrong. <laughs> it's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could probably list forever yeah. ways that a sudden dramatic acceleration in productivity could be a bad thing. But if I were to just like group them into areas of concern, those would be areas of concern. And the idea that we're a little slower and more deliberative and more inclusive and more mm. equity focused as we as a society contend with these systems and their effects is something that I'm hoping for. Do you have a view on the kind of China versus America AI race? Because when you're out listening to you talk about kind of this, what you don't want to see happen is, if you read the press, (laughs) is what is happening, that there is this great race on between China and America, AI superiority, and that this is, you know, the stakes could not be higher, and this is, you know, a kind of life and death type thing. I never know quite how to interpret those stories, if there is a there there. Um, you talk to people in Washington, D.C., it absolutely is. And other people are like, well, it's not exactly like that. But 
What is your view? I mean, I definitely run into many people who say, you know, I believe in the transformative potential of AI. I believe this could be the most important century. And therefore, what we need to do is speed everything up in the US and make sure we beat China. And I do run into that. And that, I mean, that could be right, but I'm also very nervous about it. Yeah. Um, because in many ways, I feel like that's exactly, you know, that's exactly what one might worry about is just the rush and the race and just let's build these very powerful things. Move, and and, uh, move fast and break things exactly, for the yeah. world. Yeah, yes. get to this very advanced society just as fast as we can and, and just entirely focused on beating someone else without thinking about what we want that future to look like. Yeah, that stuff makes me nervous. I mean, I understand in some ways where it's coming from, and I think it could turn out to be right too. I, I think it's it, a lot of this stuff is hard, and, and what I'm not saying is that I have the answers and I know yeah, exactly yeah. what the world needs to be doing. What I am saying is, we have the dim outlines of something that could be very, very important and is not getting a lot of serious consideration, partly because it sounds so wacky. You mentioned a, a term earlier, effective altruism community. Yeah. What does it mean? Effective altruism is the idea of trying to use evidence and reason to do as much good as possible for each unit of resources. So that could be your money, that could be your time. So some effective altruists are very interested in this question of where do I donate to do as much good as possible, which is you know, something that I've worked on a lot, as I mentioned, and others will say, you know, what should I do with my career? I'm a person with talents and time. What kind of job should I take to help the world as much as possible? So I think that's a frame that I've always found interesting and important. And I've often learned things from other people who take a similar frame. Isn't that kind of, and you can correct me whether I'm wrong, isn't that kind of the Bill Gates approach to philanthropy being like super evidence-based and like, I mean, he chooses a few big problems and then just goes hell for leather for them. Yeah, my understanding of Bill Gates is he kind of learned people were just dying in, of completely treatable diseases, diseases that were treatable actually for cheap. And he kind of made a resolution to say, you know, hey, instead of working on the things that are close to me and my family, I need to help the people who need the most help and the people I can help the most. And so I think it is, yeah, I think that is a similar mentality. And Bill Gates, I mean, ended up spending a lot of his philanthropy overseas on the poorest countries, countries where the level of poverty is, is much, much worse than it is in America. Yeah. And that's similar to what GiveWell did early in my career is, you know, GiveWell also focuses on the poorest countries. And, you know, one of the themes of effective altruism is if you want to do the most good, sometimes you have to move beyond your neighborhood, your city, your friends, your family, and think about the kind of people who might not be getting enough attention through the yeah. normal methods, people who are in poor countries or people who are in the future or things like that. What's the reaction been to the blog posts about this could be the most important century ever? What's the reaction been? Has anything surprised you or otherwise? I thought it was interesting that at one point I, I sort of made a made an argument based on a analysis from a blog called Overcoming Bias that a few percent a year of economic growth really can't go on all that long. Mm. And I, I ran into a fair number of people saying, well, why can't it? And, you know, couldn't we just come up with even more advanced technologies? So then I, I wrote this follow-up that was just going into even more detail and getting even more, you know, sort of absurd with the, with the big numbers that you would get to if you just yeah. had a few percent growth a year for, you know, 10,000 years or something like that. I think a lot of people react to this idea the way that I did when I first heard it, which is just, <laughs> this is just, maybe each piece of this is logical, but this is just too much. And yeah. what do the experts think? And what am I supposed to do with this? And I, I really resonate with that. I really sympathize with it. And it's just that over the last several years, our team has been 
trying to understand all the angles and, you know, just come to the conclusion that there is no field of experts to come to the rescue and tell us what to do. Mm. And so this may be above, might be above humanity's pay grade to figure out what the future really looks like and what we want it to look like. But there's just no, there's no expert field that's going to tell us what to do. We need to figure out what to do and we need to figure out what to care about, what to pay attention to. And so I have become just a big believer in the idea that I at least need to spend more of my time thinking about very long run history, the very long run future. I sort of at this point try to write the blog I would write if I were a billion years old Uh, and just just try to think about if I were a billion years old, what would be significant to me? What would I care about? What would I expect to care about in another billion years? And I've been trying to get myself more into that headspace because I do feel like I don't feel like anyone else is going to do it for us and answer these tough questions, even though they're, yeah. they're hard and we don't have certainty on them. I mean, covering Silicon Valley in business generally, it does feel like the kind of operating model is like, let's just build it and then figure out everything else later, which has gotten us into some pretty terrible positions. And it does feel like the stakes are potentially higher if, you, again, you're talking about a super powerful form of AI. Yeah, I think build it and figure out later is is something that I would not really want to see for, (laughs) you know, if it does, and I don't know, but if it does turn out that we're capable of building these systems that can do everything human do to advance science and technology, I mean, I I would hope that's not the attitude. And I would hope that I would hope that there starts to be more of a precedent for standing back and asking what the what the big questions are on long timeframes. I know we're short on time, but I'm curious. Why do you care so much about this? Like, where does this kind of overarching concern, where does that originate from? Or do you know? I don't know. I mean, when I, let's say that you kind of had followed along with me and done all the homework we'd done and spent years looking for whether it's really plausible that this could be the most important century mm-hmm. of all time and kind of came out thinking, you know, well, I'm not certain and I don't know everything, but it it really looks like it could be. And it really doesn't look like there's an expert field here to bail us out and tell us what to do. I mean, how would you feel? Would you would you just be sort of like, oh, I don't, I don't well, care? Well, so this or? is a, no. So I would probably feel the same way you do, but sure. I probably wouldn't go down that path to begin with. Interesting. Okay. You know, I'm not that person. Okay. But I'm just wondering, like, is there? It, yeah. Did, did you grow up in a? I don't know. Were your parents like activists or something, or were they involved in the community, sure. or like, was there something about how you grew up where you started thinking about this stuff early? It doesn't feel to me like there's anything really exotic driving any of this for me yeah. it, it feels well you i mean you left it you left a hedge fund to sure. take a big pay cut to figure out how better to help people that's not something most people do sure i mean it just feels like a series of simple steps it was it was kind of the the give well story is a very stereotypical common founder story which yeah. is just that i i wanted something to exist and it didn't exist and i became obsessed with helping to create it my co-founder yeah. and i did that so it was like you know, it's just like going from, you know, some people, it's like they want a certain kind of shoe and the shoe doesn't exist. So they start a shoe company. Yeah, and yeah. I, I wanted I wanted a website that would tell me what charity to give to. It didn't exist. And I went crazy. And, you know, <laughs> and my co-founder and I wanted to start this website yeah. that would do it. And then we were in professional roles where it became sort of my job and my professional duty to ask, can we help even more people? Can mm. we do even more good per dollar? And so then I just started following that where it led. So it, it just feels like a, a series of pretty unremarkable steps that have gotten me interested in this stuff. And then I do, I do kind of feel like once you've gone through all the steps and once you've taken the idea seriously enough, I think it, it does look really important and it looks like the kind of thing that needs more serious thought given to yeah. it. Yeah. Is there one thing that you would bet on happening in your lifetime that most other people would think is totally bananas? Hmm. That's, that's a good question. Um, 
I'll say this. I think we're all used to an economy that grows at a certain rate. And I think it's more likely than not that sometime in our lifetimes, that rate is going to change very dramatically, even though it has not for the past couple hundred years. And so I think for the last couple hundred years, give or take, it's a few percent a year. That's how fast the economy grows. That's what we're all used to. And I think we could see 30% in a year. I think we could see 100% in a year, like the economy doubling in a year. Wow. Or I think we could see a global catastrophe that just levels everything. Or we could see just a slowdown where we get under 1% a year. None of those things has happened in the last couple hundred years. Mm. But I think it's more likely than not that one of them will happen in the coming century. And it feels like even just being the pessimistic journalist, each of those, even doubling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Could be a catastrophe yeah. of its own, a special catastrophe, because it's like if it doubles and it's like the lion's share goes to a very small group of people, that's World War Three, yeah. basically. Especially if we're not ready for it. Yeah. So I think, I think any, you know, we're all living in this world that just has certain dynamics and changes a certain amount. And if we don't zoom out and look at history from the zoomed up perspective and we keep just assuming that things are going to be the way they are, then any, any of those possibilities you know, even just a slowdown to zero growth or a small amount of growth. I mean, that could be a real problem in many ways. That could be World um, War Three too. Yeah, exactly. Any any of these, any totally. of these could be World War Three or it could be something really bad. So, you know, that's why I think perspective is something that I'm trying to take more of. Yeah. Well, I encourage everybody to check out the blog posts at coldtakes.com. Yeah. Which, it, by the way, I love. In the, in the world of hot takes, cold <laughs> takes. It's a great, it's a great uh, branding. <laughs> And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Holden for taking the time and answering all my crazy questions. I want to thank you all for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much, truly. And for the ratings, and for the reviews, and for those little, and sometimes big, donations via the ACAST creator feature. That's always awesome. As I've said, it's just like such a nice kind of cherry on the top of doing this gig for so long. I will be writing about a bunch of stuff this weekend, but I'm not going to spoil it. You're just going to have to buy the paper, thetimes.co.uk, or, you know, subscribe online, whatever. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Um, you can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend. We will talk to you next week. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 